Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Psycho killer Keska say, I'm going to listen to Stick to Wrestling today. I want to thank my friends at the Talking Heads for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, Perhaps, indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. And I know there are some good podcasts out there, a lot of them. But are they wicked good? Is there another wicked good podcast out there? Let me ask this group of people. How about no? No. Uh-uh, no way. Come on. No. 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 Okay, guys, more social distancing next time. I am John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, and I want to make everyone aware that we recently recorded a baseball podcast, part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. If you go to 605pod.com, you will be able to get a link to listen to that. Brian Last did a really good job putting together about eight hours of audio and getting it out there within 48 hours. That was really cool. Okay, and because through all of this, he has been binge-watching world-class championship wrestling on the WWE Network. I believe he started uh, in 1982, and I think he's finishing 1984, or he has finished 1984. I want to bring on Chris Tabar. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, John. Thank you. I'm actually almost all the way through 85 now. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... it's been fun watching it, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, it's you're wildly enthusiastic about this. Uh, so <laughs> today our show is primarily going to be about world-class championship wrestling in the year of 1984. But Chris, I mean, tell, tell me about what you thought of the whole series. Like, I mean, they have world-class dating back to early 1982. So they have basically, yeah, the, almost the full season from 82 and then everything from 83 all the way up through 88 or later, I'm not even sure. For me, it's been pretty awesome because it's brand new. I've never really been exposed to it in any depth prior to now. And so it's been really cool to see it on a week-to-week basis because in Michigan, we didn't get world-class. I just kind of got hints and pieces of it in Pro Wrestling Illustrated tapes, stuff like that. Okay. And so it's been really cool to, to, to go through it on a weekly basis. Yeah, we started getting it in Boston, which in a way makes no sense whatsoever, February 1983. And of course, it was on the same exact time as the WWF show. So you get stuff. I I mostly watched the World Class show, and then I would switch to Channel 56 to watch the interviews for the upcoming Boston matches. But I mean, World Class is a way better promotion than than the WWF, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And the, the TV product especially was a lot better. Yeah. I, I mean, I have more on that later. I actually have a story about that. Here's the thing. like, I started watching it when it was on the network, the 1982 stuff, which I had never seen before. I was very excited about it, and I didn't think it was very good. 82 is awful. 82 is the only reason to watch 82 is because you know that the last half of 83 and then 84 are coming because 82 is really bad. You're getting Al Madrill and Bugsy McGraw 20 minutes out of every show, and it's just 
absolutely brutal to watch week after week. Yeah, I can. I saw that. I mean, I mean, I've said this on the show before when Michael Hayes and Kevin Von Erich were doing the wraparounds for these shows, you know, 10, 12 years ago back at the old uh, WWE 24-7. I mean, Michael Hayes at the beginning, he started in October 82, and he's basically begging everybody, now hang in there, it gets better. <laughs> yeah, he's right. It, it is really, really tough until Hayes and the Freebirds show up, that's for sure. Yeah, even after they showed up, when they were babyfaces for a while, they're out there feuding or brawling with King Kong Bundy and Wild Bill Irwin. It just wasn't very entertaining. And I've said this before, uh, forgive me, everyone, but as, as someone growing up knowing that at the time there were three Freebirds and three Von Erichs, I never put it together before the series started that this would be just the most organic feud ever. Yeah, they, and it worked really well, even though I don't think they booked it all that well it, it certainly popped the territory and produced an, an awful lot of great action absolutely it I, I mean it popped the territory like nothing i had ever seen before now as i stated earlier we do have some questions uh from our facebook page mark swanson wants our thoughts on bill mercer's sometimes cringeworthy commentary chris what are your thoughts i would say sometimes it's understating it so I mentioned that, you know, they, they had a, a tremendous TV product, and, and I, I know we'll talk about that more later, but it's unbelievable to me that they left Bill Mercer as the announcer on this program for as long as they did, because he's just utterly incompetent. They brought in Jay Saldi in 82 and 83, who was a football player who's never done any commentary before at all, and he was a lot better than Mercer. He was super awkward, had a terrible voice and could hardly get three words together, but he was a lot better because he was super knowledgeable and would talk about stuff going on all over the place and knew the names of the moves. Mercer didn't. Mercer, he would call, like, what did he call Jake Roberts' DDT, like a reverse face drop or something. He mangled names. There's one match where the Fantastics are in there, and he calls Bobby Fulton Gentry like seven times. He called Jake Snake, uh, Snake the Jake. It's just one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And he never got any better. It'd be one thing if he, if he started out kind of inexperienced, but it's obvious he made no effort to improve, to learn anything about wrestling and just kind of stumbled through it the whole time. He's just, just terrible. Jay Saldi was a tight end for the Dallas Cowboys. So he brought that to the table. Mercer, it's hard to defend his announcing he was really bad he was really disinterested and and, but you know what there was one thing i will say about him and that is that there are were guys out there doing announcing and i would just be like why is this person an announcer why is he a wrestling announcer i knew why bill mercer was a wrestling announcer first of all he was willing to do it and secondly he was a big deal in dallas he was I know he called JFK's uh, assassination in 1962. I mean, he was a, a news anchor. He had a big television background. So he was a big name. At least he brought that to the table, if nothing else. Well, nothing else is what he brought yeah. to the table, yeah. <laughs> you uh, just, right. Yeah, you put that one on the tee for me, yeah. He was terrible. Even Mark Lawrence, who is not good by any stretch of the imagination, was 100 times better than Mercer. Mercer just... Mercer really, really hurt the product. Can you imagine how much better 
the shows would have been if they'd had Jim Ross or even Tony Schiavone calling the shows instead of Mercer, it'd be a million times better. So to lead us through, we're going to talk about the two big shows that World Class Championship Wrestling had in 1984. The first one being the Texas Stadium show on May 6th, 1984. Uh, Let me see. It was a huge crowd. It was over 32,000 people. If you can picture a football stadium, picture an oval. They had the ring like all the way on one side of the oval. There were no good seats left. If you you know, got in there, you were probably right around the 50-yard line trying to see some wrestling going on near the end zone. I know they, they announced it as the biggest crowd of all time. I think they said it was 43,000. I'm sure they didn't get that many people there, but they drew a big, big crowd for this one. Yeah, and my understanding was it was an extremely hot day. It's like 104 degrees of Dallas, Texas humidity weather. Yeah, it, they mentioned that once or twice during the show that it was really hot. They didn't say the temperature, but you could tell it was hot, and I can imagine the mat just felt like fire anytime oh, yeah. somebody got body slammed. Oh, yeah. yeah. One thing I noticed about this Texas Stadium show, they drew you know th- over 30,000 fans, which means they had a Titanic house. It had to be over a quarter of a million dollars. Yet there's no guardrails. There's just a little rope separating the fans from the wrestlers. Yep, and they've got like wood planks on the ground as a surface for them to be on. But and yeah, and nothing, no guardrails, hardly any security. Kind of, it, it, like like they took the the sportatorium setup and just put it in Texas Stadium on top of some wood planks. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. We'll get more into that in a minute. But uh, it starts off now. The television presentation starts off with the debut of Michael Hayes' Bad Street USA video. Tabe, any thoughts on this video? First of all, I love the song. I have it on my iPod. I listen to it every now and then. I don't know. It's just, there's something about the song. It just really works for me. It's cheesy as heck, but it fits the the era. It You could easily see that being on MTV from a real band in 1984, and it would not stick out at all. Here's exactly what I have in my notes. Would have fit right in on MTV minus the wrestling footage, which is like 20 seconds a- anyway. It was, I mean, it had every early 1980s cliche in the video, but it was a really good, well-produced video. It didn't look like something that came out of high school and college. Like you said, it looked like something that would it would fit right in on MTV. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, the song is pretty decent. I mean, it's not great. It's certainly not a classic, but it's not bad for for a hack like Michael Hayes to throw together something. It's not bad at all. No, it is a professional wrestler writing and performing a song. So let's not get our expectations too high. But I mean, at the time, I was like, wow, this is really good. And it was actually kind of a, almost a baby ish video. And maybe it's not a coincidence they released it right before the Texas Stadium show. Because the Freebirds were about to kind of start going in a babyface direction after this. So they started doing that on the Fort Worth show and not really showing anything on the World Class show. They were already doing stuff with Devastation. There was a match in, on uh, one of the March shows where they take on Devastation. I don't, And there's like no buildup to this at all. And, and the fans just go nuts for the Freebirds. Three months earlier... They had run the angle at uh, Reunion Arena where Michael Hayes dressed up as Santa Claus and decked Mike Von Erich. And here they are three months later, and they're being cheered wildly 
and they had the Von Erichs end up running in and they do, and they end up brawling with the Von Erichs and it's, but they're, it's amazing. Think of how hated was devastation did, or did they have to be in order for the Freebirds to be getting wild cheers after imitating Santa Claus and decking Mike Von Erich? Yeah, two things. Number one, my, one of my favorite Bill Mercer lines when that whole Michael Hayes, first of all, someone in the crowd spotted him and ruined the surprise because someone went after Michael Hayes dressed as Santa Claus. Secondly, Bill Mercer, you want to talk about a great line. He's like, oh, Santa Claus has attacked Mike Von Erich, but I don't think that's Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. You want to be sure, Bill. Yeah. Are you sure it's not the real Santa Claus, Bill? I don't know. It, it's kind of up in the air still. It's Christmas night. He's had a, he had a long day the day before. Anyway, uh, but so the first match, and let me say this, there was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, the order of the matches online. There's kind of a dispute, but according to Chris, and I believe him, the opener on the show was Johnny Mantell against Kelly Kaniski, which ended in a time limit draw. Now, I'm only bringing this match up because in one of the listings, they had Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich as the last match, and Johnny Mantell and Kelly Kaniski in a time limit draw right before that. Part of me hopes that's the truth because that had to be the most agonizing 10, 15, or 20 minutes of 32,000 people's lives, if that was true. You know, in all fairness, Johnny Mantell was halfway decent. He was. But he, but he certainly. You can tell that he had friends or family in the booking office the way he was handled because he hardly ever jobbed on TV. He was booked way stronger than a guy with his look and his ability should have been. And at that time, Kelly Kaniski was getting a little bit of a push. And here he goes 15 minutes on the biggest show of the year. Can't even beat Mantel in the opener. Yeah, but it would be funny if that somehow went on right before Flair and Von Erich and the the fans are like, oh, this is a two and a half minute match. We'll we'll get to the world title. Can't wait for it. And then it goes fifteen minutes and drags on forever with headlock after headlock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's like that scene in the Bronx Tale. Like Flair and Kerry is next. Now you can't leave. You've invested the whole afternoon into seeing that match. We're going to give you this for fifteen minutes. But anyway, I can't see them doing that. I, I think it was the opener. Second, yeah, match. it was the opener. All right. The Junkyard Dog makes a special appearance into World Class Championship Wrestling to take on the missing link in the second match. Uh, Tabe, your thoughts on this match? This is the easiest payday that either of these two guys will ever have because they, I think they went like two minutes and then it's a DQ and uh, JYD gets KO'd, I think, if I remember right. I don't remember exactly the finish, but I know they, they did basically nothing, collect a paycheck and head home. I think the finish was Link pinned JYD while Akbar was holding Dog's foot down. I remember watching this and for a minute thinking that decision was going to stand. And, you know, JYD was a superstar at this point. And, yeah, then they reversed the decision. But I was like, wow, the junkyard dog can't beat this guy clean? Yeah, that's you're right. Yep, that's right. The Akbar held the leg. But I mean, they, they went like it's I think it was two and a half minutes, something like that. It was really, really, really short, surprisingly short. Should have been a little longer for those two. I'll tell you what, I had no idea at all that the missing link was Dewey Robertson at this point. If someone had told me that I would have bet every dollar I had that that was a lie because Dewey, he completely changed his look, not just with the hair and the makeup, but the guy got completely nuked out on steroids. 
Yeah, I've seen photos of Dewey Robertson, and they do not look at all the same. Easily the biggest transformation in wrestling history, I would have to say. I would have to say off the top of my head, I agree with you. And we got Dewey Robertson in the WWF in, like, I want to say late 77 into maybe mid-78. And, you know, he looked like a guy who, I'm not going to call him old, but he was middle-aged. And, you know, I just assumed he had retired. That's a little before my time because, you know, John, you're a lot older than me. But um, Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And you can tell, if you look real close, you can tell that Missing Link is not a young guy. It's not like he's 28 years old. He definitely looks much older. But, yeah, that transformation for for him. I saw something, I think, from uh, Dewey from Toronto in like 83 or 84 uh, where where he's taken on Snook and Piper as a team. And it uh, it just absolutely does not look like the same guy. And a year later, he's on a, you know, a huge show in Texas stadium as the missing link. Amazing. All right. Next match is Butch Reed against Chick Donovan, uh, most underrated wrestler in 1982, according to some people. Chris, your thoughts on this match? Kind of just a throwaway. Donovan got a bit of a push where, and then he, uh, after, after this, they did an injury angle where killer Khan tore up his knee and he went into the hospital and they right. visited him in the hospital and all that. But this is just basically a match to get Butch Reed over, give him somebody to squash that the fans kind of like, and then, you know, and just continue to build the card into the bigger matches that are to come. Yeah. It seemed like a, like junkyard dog. It seemed like a special appearance more than anything by Butch Reed, who was you know, obviously a big star in Mid-South, just one state over. I'll tell you what, though. I watched this match, and Butch Reed looks like Superman. He has uh, huge arms, a huge chest, and not an ounce of fat on him. He's got practically a Rick Rude stomach. Yeah, he looked amazing. And of all the guys in that era, the really ripped, huge muscle guys, he was probably one of the two or three best workers. He could really go when he wanted to. One thing I was going to say as I was watching this match, one of the uh, number one what ifs out there, and we've asked it on Stick to Wrestling before, is what if Hulk Hogan decided after Rocky Three, and what if he got an offer to remain in Hollywood doing movies, who would Vince McMahon have selected as his Hulk Hogan? And after this, match really my number one and two used to be hacksaw jim duggan number one kerry von eric number two butch reed is now my number one well the advantage that reed has over kerry who i still think would probably maybe be the number one is that reed was a much better talker than kerry kerry definitely had that good guy vibe and had a, a personality that people kind of were attracted to but reed was a much much better talker and would work as a face or a heel although he's much better heel but yeah, he would have been really good. Obviously, he's not going to be anywhere near what Hogan ended up being. But if you can't get Hogan, having Butch Reed would not be a bad choice in late 83, early 84. No, and to make clear, I don't think anyone would have had anywhere near the impact Hogan had. But I mean, if I had to pick uh, plan B after watching this match, I'm saying Butch Reed. Yeah, that's not a, not a bad choice by any means. All right. Next match, we have the great Kabuki. Versus Kamala, the Ugandan giant. Uh, Tabe, your thoughts on this match? Uh, two guys that I just don't like very much. Kabuki, thanks to his friendship with Gary Hart, gets a huge push every time he's in world class. A couple of guys that just are not very good. 
to, in my opinion, Kabuki's not terrible, I guess, but Kamal, he, he, it's not a good match. And they give him what they go, 12 minutes, 14 minutes, something like that. Uh, man, way, way, way too long. This should have been the two minute match with missing link and JYD going seven. This one should be two minutes, double disqualification brawl or something like that. And that's not what we got. No, we, it was it, it was a bad match, and it had a dead crowd. But you know what? It was actually a very important match because Kabuki had recently come back to world class, and he had always been a heel. So this match comes in as heel versus heel, and Gary Hart is managing the great Kabuki, whereas Skandor Akbar is managing Kamala. Kabuki wrestles as a babyface in this match, and Gary Hart does the babyface spots where he's going after Skandor Akbar and you know knocking him around, and Akbar's running from him. And Gary Hart got over as a babyface with the crowd. Now this sets the stage for what was going to be the replacement for the Freebirds, where Gary Hart starts managing Chris Adams as a babyface manager, and he leads Chris down the bad path. But we'll get we'll get more into that later. But like I said, in a way, I thought this was a very important match. Yeah, and isn't if I recall, Gary had some stuff to say in his book too about Kabuki being a babyface, and that he he advised Kabuki to not do it because it hurt his gimmick. If I remember right, something like that. I don't remember what he had to say exactly. It's been a long time, but it was something like that. That there was a disagreement between the two of them as to what Kabuki should be doing in world class at this time, or or the, or later in the year. You know why? I never really thought about that because Gary Hart started managing Kabuki either late 80 or early 81, and they had been consistently a team ever since. And as far as I know, this is the last time I saw Gary Hart with Kabuki. I think you're right. After this, Hart was by the, he moved on to being with Chris Adams and then Kabuki kind of disappeared for a while, too. Yeah, he went down. I, I don't even know where he was in later in 84. I know he was in mid-Atlantic in 85 and wound up in Memphis in 86. But really, this is the, the last we've seen of the great Kabuki. I mean, his days as a main eventer in Dallas are gone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Next match, we have the Super Destroyers taking on Iceman King Parsons and Buck Zumhoff. Uh, Chris, what did you think of this match? Uh, it's all right. I love the super destroyers. I like them better as the long riders, but I love the, I love the super destroyers. They're, they're just huge guys that can really, really work and have a great look, which of course they lose something of when they're put under the mask. Parsons is decent. Zoom off for as as much of a scumbag as he might be was halfway decent in the ring. Uh, I don't remember who, if they did, who went over in this one? Because I, I know they, they switched the titles between these two teams a few times right in this time frame. I can't remember how, how who went over here. Uh, I believe Iceman and Zoomhoff won the championships on this occasion. Okay, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, so they, they did all the all the baby faces went over in the big matches. That's right. It's a good match. It, it's plenty of action. You got four guys in there that can work. It's a good way to start building the crowd up. Give them 15 minutes to, to really you know show what they can do, which is something that they did on all of their TV shows, they would have longer matches, give guys a, a lot of space to really work. And when you got four guys this good, that's a good thing to do. All right. Let's forget about everything we've learned about Buck Zumhoff over the past 10 years. Let's just forget that. At the time, I couldn't stand this guy and his jumpsuit and just his look. He came across as a real phony to me. 
I just didn't think he was at the time. I'm like, this guy is, I didn't know this word yet, but I felt like this guy was unpushable. I couldn't stand him. I liked Iceman and I'm glad that he was getting a nice push and getting the tag team titles and a feud with the super destroyers. But I, I desperately wanted him to have a different partner. Yeah. Zoom off. He just comes across as a guy. Again, even ignoring all the stuff we've learned since then, he kind of just comes across as a douchebag. Yeah. You know, and you know, you look at the jumpsuit, which is dated by a decade, you know, it's like a Leaf Garrett jumpsuit kind of thing. <laughs> With the huge boom box, and it just seems he, he seems almost like a caricature of a baby face because he's trying so hard to be a baby face. And you know, then he took the same gimmick over to the AWA and it didn't work any better there. He was not good enough for, for the push that he got. Oh, I wanted Akbar to shove that radio down his throat. <laughs> he came across as so insincere. I will say this like, I loved the long riders. I've said on the show before. I think had Scott not gotten sick, they would have had a really good run in the WWF, maybe even as tag team champions. Uh, but at the same time, as the Super Destroyer, Bill Irwin, or should be Scott Irwin, as the Super Destroyer, had gotten big pushes in Georgia. He was more middle of the car than main event in Mid-South, but he was a big name as Super Destroyer, and that's one reason why I thought that tag team worked here. Yeah, he and I loved Scott. I even as a as a kid, even in Georgia when he was just as himself, I recognized that this is a dude who was really, really good and he's just a gigantic person. He's you know, six seven or whatever he is and three hundred and fifty pounds and could really, really go, had the superplex that he did. I was and still am a huge fan of both him and his brother. Yeah, me me too. And one thing I want to push in our Facebook group, I mean recently I posted my 15 favorite tag teams of all time. I was tempted to put Iceman King Parsons and Buck Zumhoff in the middle of that just to freak everybody out, but I'm too old to be doing stuff like that now. But if you want to see my top 15 tag teams of all time, join the Facebook group. Now we're I, getting to the meat of the act. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I thought you put Fuji and Saito in as a joke. <laughs> No, Fuji and Saito were heat machines in the WWF. They, I mean, I hated them, which was their job. So they, and everyone hated them. So I thought they were, that was just a fun time in the WWF. All right. Now we're getting to the good stuff. The bad street match. Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts taking on Mike Von Erich, Kevin Von Erich, and coming out of retirement is Fritz Von Erich. Table, a lot to go over here. Part of what made this match happen is Kerry was going to get the shot at the NWA world title. And so there, there had to be another partner. And Michael Hayes comes out and he says to Fritz Von Erich, Fritz Von Erich, by the way, had been missing since Terry Gordy slammed the, the cage door in Kerry Von Erich's head. We hadn't seen Fritz until, I want to say, November 1983. And Fritz finally comes out. And, of course, he gets into it with Michael Hayes. And then right before this match, we see Fritz again. So Fritz is doing an interview. Michael Hayes comes out. and He's like, all right, I've got this between three guys. Who the partner's going to be? Bruiser Brody. Kamala already ran him out of here, and we took care of Kamala. Lance Von Erich, your European flunky. And I'm like, wait, I remember being like, wait a minute. There's another Von Erich? That's right. Yep. And who was the other name, Chris? I'm forgetting. Uh, I want to say it was, I want to say Andre the Giant, but I'm not. I can't remember. 
because I, I didn't write it down who who he said. <laughs> I want to say it was Andre, but I'm not sure. I just remember the only uh, the only thing I took away from that was wait a minute. He mentioned Lance von Eric. What the heck? And a year and a half later, here's Lance von Eric, who they've already set the table for. Yep, that was great. But anyway, of course, Fritz von Eric says to Michael Hayes. The partner in the six minutes, the next man would hit you right between the eyes. And Hayes is like, what? And Fritz belts him. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so we get to the match, and it is an excellent match. Despite the presence of Fritz Von Erich and Mike Von Erich, I mean, it was a really good brawl. Terry Gordy was throwing chairs all over the place, and right before the match, he, like, really cut Kevin Von Erich's hand with a chair. I didn't even catch that, yeah, I- this is a terrific match. It's a great way to hide all the flaws that Mike and Fritz have. Because, you know, Fritz is 400 years old and can't go anymore. Mike is super inexperienced. So you just stick him in a brawl and let him throw punches. It works perfectly in that way. But no, I didn't. I did not see the, the cut on Kevin's hand. Oh, it was pretty bad. Uh, but I mean, Fritz von Erich, you know, I when I was watching this match, I'm like, okay, how old is this guy really? And I look it up. At the time, he was only 54 years old. He had to be the oldest 54-year-old. He looked easily 10 years older than that. Wow. He would have passed for 70. Yeah, he, man, he if he's 54, wow. I, I would never have guessed that low. I would have guessed 64 at least. He looks a lot older than 54. I, I was taken aback by that. But anyway, Fritz is over. And I remember my friends and I, laughing hysterically over Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, these two young, great athletes. And when Fritz punched them, I mean, it was like these guys got shot out of a cannon. <laughs> they certainly knew how to sell his stuff. That's for sure. Even though it, in world class, of course, they, they weren't afraid to stiff guys, but they certainly sold it like he was just knocking the crap out of them. That's for sure. And, you know, it was, and I'm not, complaining about it it's what the fans wanted to see when fritz got his hands on those free birds i mean the place went wild and they did a spot talk about times changing fritz would do interviews about how he was going to give michael hayes the spanking that he's always needed that you know little mama's boy who's never had a spanking and when kevin and mike hold michael hayes and fritz proceeds to whip michael hayes behind with a belt the place went bananas. It was hilarious to watch. Yeah, it was great stuff. And then he does the simultaneous claws on two guys too. It, yeah, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And this is a, you know, it's action start to finish. I can imagine that the crowd just ate up every second of this one. Yeah, I mean, and here, here's the thing. Two other things happen. First of all, after the match is over, Killer Khan runs into the ring. We had no idea he was coming to world class. I think it was his first United States appearance since 1981. And so, so now the Freebirds, at least for a little while, have this giant new ally, Terry Gordy's friend from Japan. Yep. And Mark Lawrence helpfully tells us that he's the biggest Oriental he's ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> In a comment that just does not age real well. Uh, no. <laughs> does not (laughs) but yeah it gives them an ally and of course they would it sets up a feud for later so the freebirds get their heat back after losing the match because they get a chance to kill the von erics afterwards with the help of this guy 
you know, I thought this feud was over. I mean, I thought it was over multiple times. They did a thing where the Von Erichs ran all of the Freebirds out of Texas via a series of loser leave town matches. And then, you know, they do this thing where, oh, the, the Von Erichs are going to go to Georgia and defend the world six man tag team titles, which even as a 19 year old, I knew was a bunch of crap and the Freebirds regained the titles in Georgia. So now, oh, they have to come back. It was just the weakest, you know, we're blowing off this loser leave town spot ever. Yeah, this right here, this match should have been the blow off of the feud. It, it definitely went on way too long. They could have ended it at Christmas uh, when they had the, the Michael Hayes Santa Claus thing. But this right here, this should have been the end. And it, and it wasn't the end. They continued on after this. This should have been the end of the feud. It really should have not only because the feud had been going on for literally a year and a half by now, but. I mean, wouldn't the Bad Street match at Texas Stadium where Kerry wins the NWA title be the perfect time to blow off that feud? And even the big rematch set up with this match didn't end the feud. There were still multiple matches to come yet. This would be like if they ran, you know, Snuka and Morocco again after the cage match yes. at Madison Square Garden. It's the big blow off in the big stadium and they didn't end the feud. Big mistake. No, and they had one of the best matches of the decade, July 4th, right after this. They had a Bad Street match in Fort Worth, and it was even better than this one. Of course, you know, putting in Kerry for Fritz might have something to do with that. But yeah, I'm with you. This was That was a really good analogy with the Snooker-Backland thing. This should have been the end, but it wasn't. Yep, absolutely. But, all right, and then we get the main event. Kerry Von Erich against Ric Flair and... I just wanted to tell a story. Okay, the ring robe that Kerry wore was, it's a David Von Erich, you know, I believe 1958 to 1984. Really well done, really classy. And I was at a convention run by a friend of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, John Arezzi, in 1981, and Kerry was trying to auction off that robe. And the beginning bid was going to be what he wanted was $900. And the place went silent. Not one bid on that robe. And Kerry looked pissed. And it just goes to show how far Kerry had fallen in that seven years. But I'll tell you what, I wish I could go back in a time machine and invest $900 in that robe. Oh, for sure. That robe is gorgeous. Yeah, I would have bought that in a heartbeat for 900 bucks. I might have given it back to Carrie after buying it, but I certainly would have bought it. Beautiful robe and perfectly done with the yellow rose on it in memory of David. Oh, perfect. I mean, not not only it was it a beautiful robe, no questions asked, but can you imagine what that would have been worth? I'm not what it would what it would be worth today, but what it would be worth like when wrestling really peaked, like ninety nine, two thousand or so, when you had eBay, when you could let people know that hey, this is yours if you want to buy it. Yep, you're right. It'd be worth a fortune. Yeah, I couldn't even guess, but that $900 investment would have brought a nice return. For sure. All right. Now, they announced that the title would change hands on a disqualification. Ric Flair could not get disqualified as he had done so many times beforehand. So basically, they've booked themselves into a corner here. Like you're, I'm kind of saying to myself coming in, all right, how is Kerry not winning the title? And he did win the title. 
I think, you know, I think they pretty much said on TV and Fritz, I mean, he said it kayfabe, of course, but I guarantee that Kerry will win the title. I think I got to think that they, you know, the fans kind of knew it was, that knew it was going to be a title change and they had to, if they don't change the title at this time in this place, uh, that just kills the promotion. You, you have to do the title change. Which leads me to my question to you. There has been, I mean, a raging debate over the years. We're going back decades. Was David Von Erich supposed to win the NWA title? And this is where I come to you because you have watched this footage recently. If I recall correctly, in like right around the right around the end of David's life, so we're talking February 1984, it felt like they had once again booked themselves into a corner where David Von Erich either had to win the NWA title or both David and the promotion would lose face. Like, what do you think of that tape? I think you're right. Cause they'd said something like, well, he, well, first of all, David said that he was going to beat Harley race or he would quit. And then Ric Flair regained the title. And so that, that ended up never coming to pass. And then they ran the thing at, on Christmas night where Flair got himself disqualified a couple of times. And then they set that set up a rematch with David that I don't think happened. There might've been one in Fort Worth afterwards. I don't remember, but they were clearly setting something up. I'm not sure that David was promised the world title. If he was, I think it's a mistake because Kerry is definitely the better of the brothers. Uh, but it, for sure, they booked themselves into a corner with the Texas stadium show. I don't know if they did the same with David, you know, in February. It felt like it did, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say why I think David would have been a better NWA champion than Kerry. Um, And don't get me wrong, I think Kerry, if he had his head screwed on right, would have been a a good long-term NWA champion. David could work both styles. If he had to, he could go back to Florida and wrestle as a heel. He could wrestle as a heel anywhere, which probably he would have done, except for Dallas. They actually talked about it because he was gone for a while. They talked about it on the TV. Hey, you may have seen people talking about how they don't like him in Florida. Well, he hasn't changed, though. He's the same David that we've always known. Yeah, he was definitely more versatile than Kerry in that regard. He wasn't as good in the ring as Kerry, but he was more versatile in that way. And he would have been a decent champion with a couple more years on him and maybe a, a little work on his physique, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Fritz von Erich was huge. And I think, I mean, if you've seen Fritz von Erich in his prime, is a giant compared to the other guys he's wrestling. I think David would have filled out naturally. I think, yeah, I think so. Cause he was still only 25 when he died and, and, you know, a couple more years of working out, maybe a couple more years of steroids, that kind of thing. And he would have been a much more impressive physical specimen than he already even was. Yeah. I mean, and he was an athlete too. He played basketball at North Texas state. Now I know North Texas state is North Carolina, but he was good enough to do it. Yeah, he was clearly very athletic. All, all four of the brothers, even Mike, was obviously an athletic kind of guy. Yeah, so, I, and one thing that I noticed for the first time, they were talking about uh, some college erecting a David Von Erich Memorial Gym. I googled it, and this thing on medium.com comes up and said, what if David Von Erich had come back on this show? And it's it's like what? A, me, a medium, so you're thinking, okay, well, David could just do that. That would have been a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it was a church actually that was building a gym. They he, they ended up doing a uh, 
a playground in a hospital too, but I think it was a, a, a church that was doing it. And I Googled the church and the church no longer exists. I'm kind of suspicious that it ever actually was going to happen. No, <laughs> I got to, I got to think this was just a, a way to rip off the fans, which is kind of gross. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So what did you think about this actual match, Chris? I thought this was perfect. I thought they handled from start to finish. Absolutely. Everything about the match was perfect. It was short. And of course, it's not a five-star, 45-minute classic that you're going to watch over and over and over, but it was absolutely perfect. The environment was perfect. The setup is perfect. The match itself was good for what it was supposed to be. The finish was clean. There was no nonsense, no you know, referee knockdown or anything like that. Absolutely 100% clean, easy title match. You know, And I'm sure it's part of it was that it was 150 degrees in the ring, so they didn't mm-hmm. want to go too long. They wanted to keep it simple just to make sure that there was no mistakes or anything like that. They do the finish. Everybody's going nuts. They got the whole crowd celebrating, all the people in the ring. And then Flair comes over and challenges Carrie. And they're, oh, we don't want any trouble. And Ric Flair says, I, you know, there's not going to be any trouble. But you tell your brothers and you tell your old man, Ric Flair will be back. Yes. And Carrie's like, you know, you got it, baby. That's perfect. It was. It, it was absolutely, absolutely perfect. perfect. I came into the match with low expectations because there were flair versus carry matches that blew away this particular match. However, it was a good match. I mean, it wasn't a bad match at all. And here's the thing. The crowd was not there to see a classic wrestling match. They were there to see a coronation of carry becoming the NWA heavyweight champion. Absolutely. They did not need to do 30, 40 minutes. They needed to do 10 minutes let Kerry win, and let everybody be happy. And it accomplished that absolutely yes. perfectly. They sent 32,000 people home happy, and they got what they came to see. And it was practically promised to them that Kerry was going to win the championship. Yeah. You know, as I watched this, I've watched it several times in the last couple of months, but as I was watching this, I can't help but think, you know, what the heck is going through Kerry's head Yeah, on that day? You know, Kerry's obviously a normal human being. You know, it's easy to forget that he's not just a wrestler guy that's there to perform. And he's an actual human being whose actual brother had just died three months earlier. And he's walking into the ring at an event that's in his brother's name. And he's about to reach the absolute pinnacle of his career. You know, what is going through his head? What are the thoughts going through his mind that day, that evening, the next day? You know what? It has to be just an an unbelievable stew of emotions and thoughts running through his head. And he's got thirty two thousand people who came out to see him win the NWA championship. And there is a very loud "Go Carry Go" chant in the middle of that match. And I'll tell you something: every time I have watched uh, an event on TV on tape that I have been to, and I hear a chant. I always think back and I say, television does not do the chant justice. And I'm willing to bet that television didn't do it justice here. I agree. I've been the same thing. I've been to a few events where, you know, the, the crowd goes nuts. And then on TV, it always sounds really muted. I'm sure it was overwhelmingly loud in that stadium at that time with that chant, for sure. Yeah. All right. I have a question from Dan Potts. What do you, in two questions, what do you think really happened to David Tabe? I think he was actually just sick. 
I don't think it was a drug overdose. I'm sure he was doing stuff and the you know, Brody flushed the drugs down the toilet or whatever. But I think it, I, I really think it was just, what did they say? Acute enteritis or, you know, the liver disease or something like that. I, I think it was probably just a legitimate fluke illness that killed him. For over 30 years, I believed that David died either the overdose that you described, that they were partying with recreational drugs and things went wrong. And the, the two guys he was with allegedly were more interested in cleaning up the room than they were helping David. The second one I heard was that David mixed pain pills with bourbon, and that's what happened. And I thought that for well over 30 years. And then David Bixenspan made an observation that David looked sick and he looked like someone who had the symptoms of what was listed as his cause of death. Hmm. I can't say that I've ever noticed that he looked sick. He certainly was a little more pale than you would expect for a guy who's outside in Texas all the time. Hmm. I can't, yeah, I, I, I never noticed that he looked sick and he certainly didn't seem to perform sick. Huh. No. I'll have to I'm, ask Bix about that. I mean, in the wrestling business, you keep going, even if you're not feeling well, even if that means, you know, I mean, you're not going to cancel a trip to Japan. There's no way. Yeah, that's true. So basically, uh, Dan, I now think that David just got sick with gastroenteritis or whatever it is. I, I now believe that as opposed to the overdose story, but who knows? Second question, would Kevin have made a better champ than Kerry? Tabe, your thoughts? Not a chance. Not a chance. Kerry was better than Kevin in every possible way. In the ring, out of the ring, look, personality, charisma, much, much better. Even for three weeks, he was a lot better than Kevin. No way, no how. I agree with you, especially seeing as, you know, they did keep the title on Kerry for three weeks. He made a few defenses in Texas. He made a bunch of defenses in Florida, and then he went to Japan. I still think Kevin was an excellent wrestler in 1984, but he just wasn't Kerry Von Erich. Yeah, I don't think Kevin was excellent. I always heard that Kevin was the best worker of the group, or maybe David was. But I, after watching these four years of shows that I've been watching, I've come away disliking Kevin a lot because of just a lot of little things that he does in the ring because he stiffs guys constantly. He doesn't sell properly. He cuts off heel comebacks all the time. He just, just a lot of little things, a lot of timing things that he does in my eyes that are wrong that Kerry doesn't do. And Kerry, you know, there's Kevin never had a match anywhere near as good as any of Kerry's top 10 matches. Carrie was just a lot better. That That's an interesting way of looking at it. Maybe some of it is my bias because I saw Kevin in Georgia in 1981. I was blown away by the guy. His athleticism was off the charts. But again, maybe that's just that, that bias coming from me. It could be. And, you know, and I always saw I saw Carrie first. So maybe I just have a bias that way. And maybe I'm biased because Carrie just looks the part a little more. I don't know. But yeah, I. Maybe it is just in the order we saw him and the, the bias that we brought into it. Well, hey, having that look is part of you know what would make Kerry a better NWA champion than Kevin. So we move on to the last match on the Texas Stadium show. It is Chris Adams and Sunshine taking on Jimmy Garvin and Precious. 
what an amazing, original, and brilliant feud this was. I love this stuff. I, and I find myself wondering, I care more about like what's going on behind the scenes, knowing that Precious and Garvin and Sunshine are all involved with each other you know, behind the scenes, that's that I want to know more about that. So more than just what's going on in the ring. Yeah. Coming in, I was taken aback by the whole thing. Um, and again, you know, this is 1983. I'm not knowing these things and not reading the observer, but I later learned that precious was Jimmy Garvin's real life spouse. And that sunshine was his cousin. Uh, You know, and you, if you watch it with, with knowing that if you go back and watch 98% of the time, they are real careful, even though they, you know, the implication is that they're a couple. There's nothing that actually happens where you'd say, oh, okay, they're, they're, you know, they don't act like a couple. It's not like they're kissing or doing anything that, that it's inappropriate. But there's a couple of times, there's one or two where you kind of, hmm, that's a little weird for cousins to be doing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but for the most part, they handled it really, really well. They did. They they never kissed. They they did make physical contact. Sometimes, I mean, I remember an interview when Sunshine was kind of hanging all over Jimmy Garvin, but they never crossed that line. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. It, 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 you could buy it if you went in thinking, "Hey, these are this is a real life couple." They didn't do anything that would make you not believe that. Mm-hmm. But knowing that they're actually related, they also didn't do anything where you'd say, "Ooh, that's gross." No, it was <laughs> they. <laughs> they they walk that line really really well. I agree with you 100. percent And now they before they turned sunshine, they did something absolutely brilliant. I want to say two weeks before they turned her, they showed a video of her with uh, and then this part isn't on the network, but they had Donna Summers. She works hard for the money playing in the background, and you're seeing sunshine doing all this stuff for Jimmy Garvin. Like the time she had to work on David Von Erich's ranch and she's washing his dog and it's it's a complete disaster for her. She's getting spanked by David Von Erich. Yeah, it's not 1983 anymore. And she's just you know doing all of this stuff for Jimmy Garvin. And then Jimmy Garvin brings in an assistant for Sunshine. Sunshine 2. You got to come up with a better name. Well, well, for a couple of weeks, they didn't really have a name. Precious was just the assistant and Bill Mercer says, well, I guess maybe we should call her Sunshine, too. I don't really know what we should call her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I didn't know this was a Bill Mercer creation. Live and Uh, learn. Yeah. All right. And so then they have a match in Fort Worth with Johnny Mantell with Jimmy defending the TV title and the new valet screws up. Jimmy loses the title due to her screwing up and immediately the assistant gets in the ring. The two girls get in the ring and the assistant points at sunshine and Jimmy buys it. And once again, it's not 1983 anymore. Jimmy holds sunshine while precious pounds on her. And then sunshine gets up to like, you know, retaliate and Jimmy threw her to the ground hard. Yeah, he sure did. And here's Johnny Mantell getting in the middle of a big angle. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't be the TV champion, but here he is. But yeah, yeah. They, they do a really nice job here. And boy, these two, anytime they got in the ring and were going at it, it looked really good. Precious and Sunshine, when they went at it, it looked vicious. Yes, However, you know, and she and boy, Precious absolutely blasted her here. And then Jimmy throws her down on the ground. Yeah, this is really well done. 
It was. And I remember seeing this. Now, one thing they shouldn't have done, they shouldn't have introduced the TV title into it because that title was not recognized on the Dallas TV. But anyway, I mean, I was sitting there, you know, obviously I know this is all a work at this point. I'm like, my God, how can Jimmy do that to her? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Give Sunshine credit for being willing to take that. Yeah. And I mean, not not just throwing her down the whole thing, just like, okay, this new girl is pointing the finger at her and he just believes her. And that's the end of it. Yeah. He just bought it 100 percent. Absolutely. Yeah. So Sunshine does an interview. It's on WWE Network. Might be the greatest single interview in pro wrestling history. She was an amazing actress. She went from mad to sad, back to mad so many times. She's like, Jimmy, how can you do this to me? After everything I've done for you, what's wrong with you? And then she'd get mad again. And she's like, well, I went to our place and I took everything, including your medical records and your tapes. And if you want them, they're at Chris Adams' house. That was yeah. beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, she she played the woman scorned perfectly. And the fans just absolutely bought it. She, I mean, like I said, may have been the single greatest interview I have ever seen. Then Bill Mercer goes to Jimmy Garvin's house. This is one (laughs) of the greatest skits ever. He's banging on the door. Finally, Precious comes out, and it is obvious she has been scrambling to get dressed because someone's pounding on the door, and there's Bill Mercer and the cameras. Then she goes to get Jimmy Garvin, and it's obvious that he just scrambled to get dressed. Yeah, (laughs) this is great. She answers wearing just a long shirt, and Jimmy's wearing... You know, just pants or whatever, no shirt, and they're they're at this at his beautiful house, and like they've just been interrupted, and Mercer's just is just hassling him. Yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah, it's great. And Jimmy Point, get those cameras out of here, Mercer. I ain't got nothing to say to you. Oh, it was, it was fantastic, but that was one of the little things that they did in World Class when World Class was at its best. When they interviewed the Freebirds at a hamburger stand, when they went to Michael Hayes' house to play, uh, to watch the guys play pool and do an interview there. They did an interview with the Freebirds at their pool, which turns out to be the Von Erichs pool. But little stuff like that they did outside the ring, those skits were phenomenal. Yeah, they did one with uh, in 85 with Gary Hart where he's at the side of the road and Killebrooks oh, yeah. is coming back and somebody drives by while Gary's getting ready to talk and yells at Gary and Gary's like, hey, I'm busy. I can't talk right now. And it's just <laughs> it just comes across so natural and it just, it works. Yeah. You know, and they, they did it several times. They did one where they went to Mike Bon Eric's house or he's rehabbing in a pool, lots of that kind of stuff where it felt natural the way they did it. It, it didn't necessarily feel forced, you know, and they, and where some other groups would do it and it would kind of feel forced or whatever. It, it kind of gave a little bit more color to the product, the way they did it. The WWF started doing stuff like this for their TNT show in 84, and oh man, it felt so forced. This felt like, it felt like it was real. Yeah, exactly. All right, so before this match, now one thing, Garvin versus Adams has been going on, like the Von Erichs versus Freebirds, for a long time. I mean, they had been feuding before the November 83 split, between Sunshine and Jimmy Garvin, and now here we are six months later with the feud still going on. Yeah, they were actually feuding. It was an old feud 
in June of 83, because they did an angle at the show where Carrie and Race went at it, I think it was. And Chris and, uh, and Jimmy were on the undercard of that show. So, they, yeah, this was a year old and was old even in June of 83. It was, yeah, 15, 16 months old by this time. Yeah, and I get it that you, you have this show coming up and you want to extend it and get it to the show. But it was like, hey, I'm sorry, it was really too long. Yeah, a little bit, but they were able to bring in the women, which helped a little bit. And Jimmy and Precious are on their way out. They'd be gone like a month or two later. So it was a good way to to wrap things up. And it it didn't feel, I mean, it went too long, but it didn't feel as old and as dragged on as the Freebirds feud. Maybe because Jimmy actually got to win matches once in a while where the Freebirds didn't. Yeah, I I agree with you. So before the match begins, world-class wrestling, we learn or will eventually learn gets turned on its axis because this guy with dark hair, sunglasses, and a suit gets in the ring. It's Gino Hernandez, who had been out of wrestling for the most part since May of 1983. He vanished. He went back to Southwest for a couple of weeks, I want to say in December 83, but he had been gone for over a year aside from that. Apparently, he was running a nightclub in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you know, back then when you're younger, a year and two months is a long, long time. And I was absolutely thrilled to see that Gino was back. You know, going into this match, watching it, I didn't realize this is where Gino came back. He just he showed up and I was like, whoa. So he, even 35 years later, 36 years later, it was able to be a surprise to me. You know, and theoretically, I should have known, but I didn't. And it was great to see him come back and. I didn't before starting to watch all of this stuff. I didn't really have much of an impression of Gino, but I I know you really like him and it talked really highly of him. So I was kind of looking forward to seeing it. And so for him to show up at this card, I was like, Oh, okay, this is good. Now the good stuff is really going to start. Yeah. Because after the Freebirds got run out of world-class, I mean, until Gino Hernandez got hot and they were going to put him in a microwave, man. Really, the first part of 1984 is pretty bad. It's kind of the Von Erichs against Akbar's guys, but really not going in any direction. Yeah, they were kind of, well, and it, that's kind of understandable. Losing David like that, I'm sure it had to throw them for a loop. They, and there was a, f- a few weeks where the Von Erichs aren't on TV at all. And now you've got Blair wrestling Chris Adams on occasion and stuff like that. So I'm sure they were kind of lost outside the ring as well this 25 year old brother and son just died. Yeah. But they have to somehow throw together a product and put it on national TV and do all of that. So it's not surprising if the product would suffer a little bit before the Texas stadium show, and then they'd finally get their feet back under them and build to something better after. Yeah. It it felt like they were losing the free birds, but then they couldn't figure out a way to replace them. And so they brought them back, but now the pieces are in place to replace the Freebirds. Once again, we have Gary Hart showing up as a babyface. He would soon be managing Chris Adams. We have Gino Hernandez returning. And for whatever reason, I think they knew with what direction they were going in. They were going to turn Adams and they were going to give Gino. I mean, they had to know they were giving Gino the mega push. Well, he came in and basically said, I'm going to win the title in two weeks from whichever one of you guys wins this match or, or whichever one of you is still the champion in two weeks, I'm going to take the title from you. 
Yeah, I remember that. And rolling my eyes, Gino saying, you know, I have a match signed in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I was like, oh, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> well, you can't. It's got to be someplace that nobody's going to actually be. It's not like he can say, well, we're going to have a match in San Antonio because they weren't actually going to have the match. So you got to pick someplace that nobody would actually go. Kind of like what they, they did a title switch in uh, later in 85 in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> oh, my, my favorite was the one in 1986 when in Detroit, Michigan, I think it was Mike Von Erich and Iceman Parsons beat Roddy Piper and Bulldog Brower. How did they come up with those two together in 1986? They also ran an angle where when Mike hurt his shoulder the first time, they said it was at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit as well. And I can assure you, if they had come to Joe Louis Arena in 1984, I'd have been there. <laughs> <laughs> the reason Mike hurt his shoulder was he hit whoever it was so hard that the shoulder popped out of place. And like I said, even at the time, I was rolling my eyes at that. Yeah. They told some whoppers in world class. So what, what did you think of the mixed tag team match, Chris? It served its purpose. These kind of matches are never going to be good, but it served its purpose. We got Gino. You know, it, it served to mostly wrapped up the feud, although, like I said, they carried it on a little bit after and did some loser leaves matches, that kind of stuff, as a way to kind of blow off the show, send the fans home happy after the, all of the stuff they've already seen throughout the day. It's a good way to tie things up. I agree completely. I mean, we weren't expecting classic wrestling, but we gave the fans what they wanted to see. We got we had precious beaten on her way out, and the Garvin and Precious weren't going to be around much longer at all. Exactly. They did a Loser Leafs Texas uh, match in Fort Worth a month later or something like that. And in a cage, that was yeah. It. Yeah, and then that was it for them. All right. One observation I made about this match. Chris, who's the worst referee you've ever seen? Oh. Um, I put you on the spot with that one. I apologize. Boy, yeah, no, no, that's okay. Um... I'll say one that is the most overrated How about that. Well, and guy that I dislike the most, and that's Tommy young. I can't stand Tommy young. I think he was terrible, but the worst ever Tommy uh, was bad with those Ric Flair spots where, you know, he would shove Ric Flair and Ric Flair would go flying. I never like it when the referee made himself, you know, such a big part of the show. And with that said, my pick isn't even David Manning. Yeah, that would be my next. If, if we're talking about guys that can't, that absolutely insist on making themselves part of the show, David Manning is one. And I all through my notes, as I'm watching the, these shows, I have stuff about David Manning, how he ignores interference from baby faces and then punishes the heels for it. And he drop kicked uh, Ken Mantel, I think it was, or somebody, I forget who, in 82 or 83. He was in a feud with a wrestler. And, you know, he's just such a jerk constantly but that I celebrated when killer Khan press slammed him and he, or when Kevin threw him over the top rope, I, I was I was happy about it, but for worst ever, uh, well, Bronco Lubitsch was pretty horrible. Ah, well, you've, you've picked wisely, my friend. <laughs> One last thing about David Manning. I mean, he would, you know, before the bad street match, he gets on the mic and all right, give me, give me, give me, give me. He's like, shut up. <laughs> but, yeah, he he did that all the time where he he was, you know, he's 120 pounds and I'm going to show you how much of an enforcer and how much authority I have. Yeah, if you yeah. cheat, I'm going to kick you out of here. Ugh. Yeah, he, he was a bit much Bronco. Now, in some ways, I felt bad for the guy because he needs to make a living. 
he wasn't going to be able to do that any other way, but his knees and his hips were bad and he couldn't get around. So he couldn't even get on the mat to count a guy out one, two, three. He had to like go to one knee and just, you know, one, two, three. It looked really bad. But again, he's an old man with injuries, so you can forgive that. What I can't forgive is in this match, Chris Adams juices. He's bleeding. And Bronco decides to check the cut by grabbing him by the hair on the back of his head, pulling his neck back to check the cut. If I'm Chris, I'm like, get off me, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, and the other thing they did with Bronco is one thing that world class loved to do is overturn finishes and overturn decisions where somebody would get pinned and then they turn it into a disqualification. And 99% of the time, it was David Manning coming from the back to overturn one of Bronco's terrible decisions. It was never David Manning who made the mistake. Even when he made the mistake, it was always Bronco that had to look bad. And it was always David who got to scream into the microphone afterwards. It was, <laughs> yes, it was bad. We have, I'm sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Nope, I was going to say, yep, you're right. It was always David yelling into the microphone, getting to show off again. <laughs> Richard Conroy put in a question. Tully Blanchard said he called Gino Hernandez in 1984 to come to Mid-Atlantic. Do you think Gino should have done that? If I recall correctly, Tully was saying this is 1985. But either way, Tabe, what are your thoughts? If you'd asked me this question a year ago, before I had seen as much of Gino as I've seen now, I'd have said that idea is terrible. But having seen it now and knowing that Tully and Gino were the original dynamic duo in Southwest, in 84, you know, that's not a bad idea. Gino had a lot of charisma and was a good worker. He kind of had the it factor a little bit, although he wasn't the biggest guy. I don't think that's a bad idea. I think he probably made the right decision to stay in Texas. He was a bigger star in Texas than he would have been in Mid-Atlantic, but it would have been a lot of fun to have him and Tully in Mid-Atlantic and maybe even eventually uh, as a horseman. That would have been a lot of fun. We talked about this on one of the earliest Six Wrestling shows, like what would have happened had Gino Hernandez not passed. I have two separate answers for this. If Tully found out that Gino was coming back before the show and he said, hey, you want to come here, not world-class, I think Gino made the right move going to world class, getting that titanic push and, you know, not having to share spotlight really with anyone until Chris Adams officially turned. He could have gotten lost in the shuffle in the Carolinas, but 85, I mean, in the middle of this push, Gino was making a lot of money in 1985 in world class. I just see no reason why he would have taken a chance and gone somewhere else. Yeah, he could have won the NWA Tag Team Championships with Tully. Yeah, he could have been one of the four horsemen, maybe even. But at the same time, like, you know, why change what's not working? I've said this before. Now, if we go into 1986, there's no question that had Gino survived, he would not have stayed with World Class. He would have either gone to the NWA or he would have, more likely gone to Mid-South like everyone else did. Yeah, he wraps up the feud with Chris Adams, you know, after the the blinding angle and all that. If he survives another couple months in Texas and then he's going somewhere else, maybe he goes to the Carolinas. But yeah, I I think maybe along with, like you said, everybody else, he goes to Mid-South and he would get a gigantic push from Watts, no question. 
Yeah, I mean, Watts needed heels, especially outside of the Freebird, so I, I agree with you. Christian Bodie, former guest on the show, uh, former and future, asks us, and this is 1984, so it counts. The Midnight Express arrived. Why did Fritz take the Midnight Express if he was only going to misuse them? Tabe, your thoughts. Well, I don't think he misused them all that much. And what he So what he was doing, so he brought in the Fantastics, he brought in the PYTs, and he brought in the Midnight Express. He was clearly at least thinking about trying to do something to bring back the tag team division so that he's got something else to promote other than just whatever his, his sons are doing at that moment, whatever big feud they're in, especially with the Freebirds gone. And, you know, the, the Chris and Gino thing hadn't really taken off just yet. Although the Midnight Express came in, came in later, they were after the Cotton Bowl. I think he was trying to build a tag team division. And for the most part, it worked. Although the PYTs didn't stick around long. We got a lot of good matches with the Fantastics and the Midnight Express, at least. Yeah. I don't think they were misused. I thought they were used just fine. I am in complete agreement. And I also want to throw, I, I don't think Fritz really was, was hands-on as far as bringing in talent anymore. I'm not sure who directly dealt with Bill Watts. I'm guessing it was Ken Mantell, but I could be wrong. Like you, Chris, I mean, someone who was watching at the time, they brought in a tag team and they got a tag team push. They got a good tag team push. They got the titles. They worked the program with the Fantastics. Jim Cornette got the little feud with Sunshine. I mean, everything looked right to me at the time. The only thing is, at the time, I didn't realize the kind of gates the Midnight Express were drawing in main events in Mid-South. But that said, you know, I know I read Jim Cornette's Midnight Express book. I know they were unhappy in world class. They weren't getting the push they thought they were going to get. They did not work with the Von Erichs, which means that they did not make the big money. My understanding is if you didn't work with Von Erichs in world class, it was not a good payoff territory. But if you did, it was. That makes sense. I can see that because they did not work with the Von Erichs. They were strictly with the Fantastics. And I can see why they would be unhappy. And they stuck around, but they did still stick around for six months until the next Texas Stadium show. And Christian's second question was also, did Flair or any of the other talent t- ever tell Fritz to piss off with the way he was determined to bury them? Tabe, your thoughts? Well, it's pretty obvious Flair never did, uh, although he certainly should have, and Harley as well. The way they treated the champions there was just kind of disgraceful. They definitely buried them over and over and over. And the same thing with the Freebirds, too. The Freebirds were constantly on the short end. There was one stretch where Terry Gordy lost cleanly four times in six weeks on TV. This is a guy that's supposed to be one of your top heels and is in the top feud with the Von Erichs. I don't think anybody ever did tell him to piss off. Maybe somebody did that I'd, I'm not aware of, but they certainly should have. And this would be, you know, if you're talking about how did world-class screw up, this would definitely be one of the things that they did to mess things up and that they just did not let their heels and their champions look strong enough. They constantly made the world champion look really weak, which makes the Von Erichs look even weaker because they can't win the title, you know, and the heels, they, the very first match they ran on world-class with the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs, it was a gimmick match and the Freebirds jobbed cleanly. Yeah. The very first match that makes no sense. What are you doing? No, it, it's an old axiom in wrestling that the heels always win the first match. And, you know, and someone 
is right now sitting there saying, well, the feud worked. It's like, yeah, sometimes you can have a 10 and a 9 and ask for another card, and the card's a 2. You still didn't do the right thing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I agree with you. It was almost like following wrestling through the magazines, it kind of frustrated me sometimes in Florida how Dusty Rhodes would always make it look like he was way better than the NWA champion, and somehow whether it be funk or race or flair, they would always get disqualified and and keep the title in some unsavory manner. I mean, world-class took this to a new level and not only did they do it with one guy, Dusty Rhodes, they did it with three guys. They did it with the David Carey and Kevin. Yeah. They took all three of these guys and made them look vastly superior, but then they could never get the job done and actually win the title until, you know, May of 84. Yeah, and I mean, to answer Christian's question, I mean, knowing what I know about Harley Race and when when David, like, just, you know, knocked him out and threw the NWA title on him, I'll bet Race just laughed at that. He didn't care. At some point, though, Ric Flair, I thought, especially when they made him or they asked him to and he said, yes, go to a time limit draw with Mike Von Erich, who had been, I think he was 19 years old at the time and had been wrestling for two or three months. and. They did a 10-minute draw where Flair was on the verge of losing at the end of 10 minutes. Like, Rick should have said no to that. Absolutely. It's one thing to go 10 minutes, but if you're going to do that, the 10 minutes needs to be Flair is killing the guy for nine minutes, puts on the figure four, Mike is screaming in pain and, and, and suffering and all of that, and then the bell rings. And look at the courage that he displayed and not giving up. He's only been wrestling for two months. Oh, isn't it wonderful that he was able to do that? But no, no, no. Of course, it's it, they decided to make Mike, who was not a good wrestler at this point, look like a Superman. Just a terrible decision. And you know what? I, I don't think that the average fan watching on television bought that for a minute. I think they were just like, okay, this is the promoter's kid, and this is phony pro wrestling. Probably true, although... I think the Von Erichs were so over that maybe they bought it a little bit, but it's just ridiculous. And, you know, not to sidetrack too much, but I thought for the most part that they did a really good job with Mike with the push up until the point where he wins the American title from Gino. I thought that was a mistake. But for the most part, all of his matches were were wins, of course, but he won by flukes. It was a roll up or somebody was distracted or, you know, it wasn't like he was hitting somebody with a pile driver. And getting a dominant one, two, three. He wasn't using the claw on people. And the matches were kept simple. Lots of headlocks, lots of drop kicks, that kind of stuff. So I thought they did a good job protecting him in that way. But then every once in a while, they would do something like the thing with Flair or giving him the title over Gino, which was just stupid. I, I agree. And I remember the show from, I think it was Christmas night, 84, when Mike used the claw for the first time on Jake Roberts and Jake bled like crazy. And it was just, it was too much. They were trying too hard to create a Superman before he was ready. Sean Delaney asks, what kind of a relationship did Fritz have with the other NWA territories at this time? Well, my understanding is at least for a little while, it was pretty good. And obviously he got tons of dates on the champion because Flair was in Texas a lot in 83 and 84. So there must've been at least a halfway decent relationship, but obviously it's soured in the second half of 85 and then into 86 
for him to break off on his own. Yeah, I mean, Fritz seemed to be a very popular guy with the other promoters. He was exchanging talent with Bill Watts on a regular basis. I mean, when Kerry won the NWA championship, Vince featured it in his magazine. Wow, you know, because that's how badly he wants to be in bed with the Von Erichs. The next year, he lent Kerry out to Hawaii. He lent him out for one night to the AWA. So, you know, I'm thinking right now, pretty good. But like you said, Chris, I mean, by the end of 85, he's broken off with the NWA and created his own quote unquote world title. And I mean, all of a sudden it went from, you know, he's buddies with Watts and almost partnering with him to, you know, these guys are at war over Dallas in 1986 and Watts steals a giant chunk of his talent. Yeah. Something happened, whether he just decided that, uh, you know, this, I've got to go for broke to try and and go huge or, or whether there was a personal dispute or something, but something definitely happened. And all of a sudden, all of the fences are now broken and everybody's just at everybody's throats. You know, I wanted to mention this too. Like, uh, I talked about this before on the show and I apologize if I'm repeating, but I got world-class on TV at this time, May 84, and I also got Georgia Championship Wrestling, whatever they're calling it, May 1984. And on one television show, they're telling me that Kerry Von Erich is the world's heavyweight champion. On the other one, they're saying Ric Flair is the world's heavyweight champion. And I'm going to the Meadowlands, New Jersey, to go see Ric Flair, I think, versus Ricky Steamboat. And you know what? That might have been the moment. It could have been easy for World Championship Wrestling, like the Saturday before the event, to say, hey, you know, Kerry Von Erich won the NWA title from Ric Flair, but Ric Flair has won it back, and that's who you're going to be seeing at the Meadowlands. But at the same time, my other thought is maybe that's an indication that right now, or at least pretty soon, it's going to be every man for himself. And that's what I think happened with Fritz and Bill Watts. They just figured out that, hey, you know, it's every man for himself now. I think you're right. And I think to some degree, maybe what the other guys what Juster and Ole and those guys over in Georgia were thinking is maybe we don't want to say that Flair lost and regained the title because it looks weak. And that means there's no way Flair's losing the title again. You know, he just lost it on May 6th. He's not going to lose it again on May 29th. It's just not going to happen. So maybe they just don't acknowledge it. I hadn't even really thought about that before. I'm kind of talking out loud or thinking out loud. But yeah, maybe it's a it's a just a slight indication that it's going to be every man for himself. Although, y'all you know, things were still good for another year because Flair and Kerry went on the road many many times in '85 as well. Like you said, yes. they went to Hawaii, they were in Tulsa several times, and and other places for Mid South. I mean, that's a good point. Final question uh, is also from Sean: Should only Central States, etc., have been asking for Fritz's help updating their TV production and? I mean, the answer is no, that's kind of not where Fritz is coming from. But I wanted to talk about this. World Class was by far the best produced wrestling television out there. And I actually know why. The owner of the Dallas Mavericks, the NBA team, went out and purchased state-of-the-art television equipment for Mavericks games. I don't know if they went on the road with it, but even if they did, that's 82 games a year plus playoffs. So now they've got all this expensive equipment sitting around 250 days a year at the least. 
So they approached world-class championship wrestling and said, Hey, you know, we'll, we're in Dallas. We'll cut you a deal to produce your television. And that's why you got all of these delicious six camera shoots with guys in the ring. It, it was incredible. Yeah. I had heard you talk about this before where you were saying how incredible world-class looked and how much better it was than everybody else's program. And in the little snippets that I had seen before I went on this binge watching thing, I never really got that impression. I always kind of thought, eh, it looks okay. But now watching it, especially watching it in, in nice 1080p HD, the difference is remarkable. Vince caught up real quick after WrestleMania with his shows. They got a lot better in a hurry. But in 83 and 84, Fritz was 100 million miles ahead of every other program, including his own show in Fort Worth. Like if you watch the Fort Worth stuff and the world-class show, they are miles apart as well. And that's like you said, it's because they only had the stuff in, in Dallas for the filming. The audio was on point almost too much because you could hear the guys talking at times, yes. but, you, but you could hear it helped that they were super stiff in the ring. So you were constantly hearing the smacking of flesh and they had close up camera angles and they had multiple handhelds and everything was right on top of the action. It was super well lit. The sportatorium looked great on TV. Yeah, it was a top-notch product and production that would have looked good even in 1990. Last thought on that. I, I'm, I may, we might be confusing cause and effect. Did the cameras look good because these guys worked super stiff anyway? Or did they know they had to work super stiff because of the production? My guess would be that they just worked super stiff anyway. But it may have been kind of circular. I don't know that there's any universe where Kevin Von Erich doesn't just blast people. Uh, left and right, whether the cameras are there or not. Uh, you, you may be right there. Okay, that was a really good first part of my conversation with Chris Tabar. We're going to work it out so that we have concluded talking about the Texas Stadium show for 1984. And next week, we will take a deep dive into the Cotton Bowl show of 1984, which took place in October. Chris, thanks for helping us out by being the guest. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does making this podcast sound reasonably listenable to. I want to thank all of you for listening, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Wear a mask. Let's get out of this. This concludes our podcast day.